Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Thursday, August the 11th, 2022, just two days shy of Fidel Castro's 96th birthday. And while we have been taught in our country to despise Fidel Castro, Much of the majority populations of the developing world have a different perspective of Fidel. Based on the deeds that Cuba has done since its 1959 revolution came to power for the developing world, Fidel Castro is one of the most appreciated characters in the developing world, both by its leaders such as Nelson Mandela as well as its majority populations. And this show will be rebroadcast Monday, August the 15th, 2022, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Enjoy at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 119th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. While campaigning for president, Joe Biden treated as fact that the United States intelligence agencies had determined Russia had paid the Taliban bounties to kill Americans in Afghanistan. Here on this show, we question the claim, even though it was repeated ad nauseum by the mainstream media and became a fact. Yet while Biden was a candidate, Pentagon officials would not substantiate that such bounties were paid. In other words, what most Americans were taught to believe and did believe, namely that these evil Russians were up to no good once again, was unsubstantiated slander. Mission accomplished. In August 2013, just a few years earlier, John Kerry lied to the American public claiming absolute certainty that President Assad of Syria and only President Assad was responsible for the August 21, 2013 sarin gas attack in which he killed hundreds of his own people. Bringing light into darkness pointed out the absence of evidence and therefore denied that certainty in both instances in real time. Again, we were proven right. We went to war in Iraq years earlier based on lies that were uncritically accepted and perpetuated by our mainstream media. Lies that the majority population of our country believed even a year or more later after the invasion that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, that Saddam was harboring al-Qaeda, that Saddam was responsible for 9-11. All lies. There are so many other examples of lies, whether in Vietnam, whether in Afghanistan. But I bring this up to share that the same misrepresentation and confusion around the truth of the United States, NATO versus Russia roles in the Ukraine dominate our news coverage since and before the February 2022 Russian invasion and special operation. And tonight, Scott Ritter, former weapons inspector that correctly 
warned us about the false nature of the WMDs, yet we went to war anyhow, returns to bringing light into darkness to address many of the dominant narratives that have led us astray rather than towards the truth of the unfolding events in the Ukraine that are hard to decipher. Enjoy. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is Bringing Light into Darkness Monday News and Analysis. This is your host, Pedro Gatos, and today is August the 11th, 2022. We are pre-taping this show to rebroadcast on Monday, August the 15th, 2022. We are really blessed to have with us the military and geopolitical expert, Scott Ritter, joining us from the East Coast. Scott, thank you so much for making time for us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Real quickly, Scott Ritter, he was born into a military family in Florida, and he earned his bachelor's degree in Soviet history. He then joined the armed forces, and he worked in military intelligence and in the USSR. During the 1991 Gulf War, he served as a Marine Central Command headquarters in Saudi Arabia under General Norman Schwarzkopf. At the end of that conflict, he left military service. He joined the United Nations Special Commission, the UNSCOM, the Weapons Inspection Group. And this is basically how I came across your work, Scott, and I'm sure many other people did. You were forewarning the American public that there were no weapons of mass destruction, but between 1991 and 1998, what informed your position was your activity as a weapons inspector in Iraq. In 1998, it was your resignation from that group, but not before participating in over 50 inspection missions and heading up 14 of those. So your expertise in real life military theaters and issues, I've been listening to your many of your interviews over the years, and so I find it incredibly insightful and so important. We have people like Julian Assange, who is in prison for releasing documents that are real, pristine, and unaltered documents that honestly reflect what goes on in our government and behind closed doors in the form of cables and other empirical evidence. Meanwhile, our media have abandoned their responsibility to inform the American public. Therefore, to get at the truth, documents from Julian Assange and listening to people like Scott Ritter allows the American public a much closer approximation of the truth put you in that same category of bringing really important information that most Americans are just not privy to. So first, I just wanted to commend you for that dedication and thank you for again joining us tonight. With that being said, I wanted to start the show off. There's been some interesting concerns over the last few years about this Wagner group that was specifically, I think, named after a famous German 19th century composer of the ring cycle, which apparently, you know, the ring is a series of musical dramas drawn from German heroic origin sagas. And I don't want to get into the weeds here, but it was one of Hitler's favorite composers. And so in the context of anti-Semitism and all of that type of thing, the name raises some concerns for some people. It seems that this Wagner group, it's a private military firm that came to life around 2014. And it's been connected to the Russian military, although I believe Putin has denied that relationship. But in our country, Blackwater and other U.S. private army contractors, if you will, have been contracted to promote foreign policy initiatives of the U.S. government and also proxy armies 
such as the quote unquote moderates that were not moderates in Syria. They were mainly Al Qaeda type military groups. And then, of course, in Ukraine, with our coup in 2014, we enabled and enamored and allowed the front and center greater presentation of these neo Nazis groups in Svoboda and right wing sector parties, small in number, but very, very significant in influence into the military of the Ukraine. So with that, let me focus my first question to you. Can you tell us a little bit about the significance of Wagner and compare it to U.S. and the other folks that are fighting on behalf of Ukraine and what percentage of fighting acumen or force they have on the Russian side of the equation in the invasion that has occurred this year? Well, let's just start off that I have yet to find a definitive source about the origins of the Wagner Group's name. I see a lot of speculation, you know, that that takes you down a rabbit hole that uh, totally misses the point. <laughs> Wagner doesn't exist to promote anti-Semitism. Wagner doesn't exist to promote neo-Nazi ideology. Wagner exists to promote Russian national security interests. End of story. And if you are moving in another direction, you're missing the point. And that's okay. Russia doesn't care. And that's just the first thing. Wagner is a serious organization. It's an organization that was created in 2014 to solve a problem that Russia had when it came to providing support to Russian separatists in the Donbass. The official Russian government position was that the Donbass was Ukrainian, and Russia is prohibited by law from having its soldiers participate in combat operations on foreign soil without the express permission of the Russian Duma. No such permission existed. So how do you get support to these Russian separatists uh, without outright violating Russian law? So Wagner Group was created as a vehicle through which Russia could provide military resources, both in terms of training but also in terms of fighting and doing special tasks like reconnaissance and things of that nature that the the separatists needed, but weren't able to do themselves and couldn't be done by the Russian military on a formal basis. So it was a cutout. You call it a private military contractor. Blackwater is a private military contract. The people who serve in Blackwater and other organizations of this ilk don't take an oath to uphold and defend the constitution. They swear allegiance to the almighty dollar. They're paid contractors, uh, mercenaries, if you want. Wagner, no. The oath that Wagner takes is to promote Russia, Russian interests. They are a Russian company. And many of the people in Wagner are serving Russian soldiers. They're just sheep dip. That's an old CIA term when you take a military person and you remove him from official military structure and you sheep dip them, turning them into a, a CIA paramilitary with deniability. We did this in the Southeast Asia all the time. We do it now. We do it sometimes by a stroke of a pen. For instance, when the, the SEALs went into Pakistan to kill Osama bin Laden, when they crossed the border, they stopped being SEALs and they began to be CIA operatives because they had to function under different law. Every nation has its own legal structures, their own legal limitations, things that have to occur to maintain the sense of legality. Russia's laws are different from ours, but Russia still has these laws. So Wagner was created as a legal workaround to the issue that constrained Russia's ability to support the separatists, that Russia couldn't put its military personnel directly into the fight. So they created this shell organization 
which then would allow them to sheep dip certain Russian military forces, send them to the Donbass, but they weren't there officially for the Russian military. They were there as employees of Wagner Group. Excuse me, Scott, that's very helpful. Let me ask you this. When you read some of the Western accounts, and I'm thinking about the, the Guardian, which I have very little respect for with this guy, Luke Harding, going back to the Manafort, claiming Manafort visited Assange, and that thing lived for quite some time, yet it was proven to be false. But regardless, there is all this anti-Russian propaganda, and some of it seems reasonably pointed at this issue of, and this is my understanding, and, and maybe you can correct me if this is a wrong assumption, but that that the Russian authorities have a long-standing policy of denying links between private military companies in the Russian state. Does that seem like an, an accurate statement? What is their position on the Wagner Group? Do they acknowledge them? And I don't know how important all this is, but just to flush this out a little bit before we move on would be helpful. Well, I mean, does the United States of America acknowledge that the CIA has a paramilitary group that carries out covert actions on behalf of the United States? The answer is yes and no. Yeah. We know they exist, but we don't talk about it. Okay, Wagner is the Russian equivalent of the CIA's paramilitary operations division. Got they it. carry out covert action, deniable action on behalf of the Russian government. So, of course, they deny it. But I would also say this. Luke Harding has so disgraced himself with his reporting, and we know that Luke Harding receives information from British intelligence for the sole purpose of disseminating disinformation to shape book perception. So if you're relying on Luke Harding or anybody of his ilk, when it comes to Wagner, you're going down the wrong path. And I don't make it my business to respond to Luke Harding. I just deal with the facts. The facts are Wagner was created as a vehicle so that Russia could provide appropriate military assistance to the Donbas separatists as they fought against the Ukrainian army and against the right-wing neo-Nazi formations that were seeking to commit genocide against the Russian-speaking people of eastern Ukraine. End of story. Since that time, Wagner has expanded in scope and scale. They were very effective in Ukraine. And as a result, for instance, when Russia went into Syria, 2015, Wagner went in as well. Wagner carried out very specific missions that are normally linked to what we would call joint special operations, deep strategic reconnaissance, deep direct action. Several Wagner soldiers were killed in heroic circumstances behind enemy lines, sacrificing their lives, you know, things that Americans would get, you know, the Medal of Honor for. And many of these Wagner people were decorated with state decorations, hero of Russia, a gold star, St. George Medal for, for courage, which tells you that they're operating as an adjunct of the Russian military. But there's a cutout because legally speaking, until the Russian parliament approves the presence of specific kinds of forces, they're not allowed to be there. So Wagner was in Syria doing this. Now, there's a lot of Western-based propaganda. People brag about how the United States fought Wagner and killed 300 of them. The United States has never fought Wagner. Wagner is an elite force. Wagner is an extension of Russia. If the United States ever engaged Wagner in Syria, the Russian Air Force would come to their assistance. What the United States engaged with was a different, very amateurish paramilitary outfit that was hired by some shady people on behalf of a Syrian oil company to try and gain control of some oil field. And yes, the United States did attack them. A number were killed, not 300, but a number were killed. 
But the, the rest of the story is that before the United States attacked, they reached out to the Russian military in Syria through their channels for deconfliction and said, hey, we got these guys coming up here. Are they yours? Now, if they were Wagner, Russia would have said, yeah, they're ours. Stay away from them. Russia went, no, nah, they ain't ours. You can do whatever you want. And so, again, that's just part of the mythology of Wagner. Wagner has never been defeated, mm-hmm. not strategically. They've suffered some tactical mishaps here and there in Mozambique, maybe in Congo, elsewhere. But uh, Wagner is a very effective professional organization that carries out uh, operations abroad to promote Russian interests under circumstances where legally the Russian military is not allowed to be used. So they need that possible deniability. And that there's may- not that much deniability because they're there. Yeah, I yeah, mean, I deniability is when you say they're not there. Everybody knows that Wagner is in Mali right now. Everybody. Yeah. Everybody knows that Wagner is, uh, was in Mozambique. And they weren't hiding it because what they said is this is a private military company. Right. Uh, the Russian government's approach is they're doing business just like everybody else. So it wasn't covert, yeah. meaning, oh, no, we have to deny that Wagner is there. No, Wagner's there. Well, this, this pejorative coverage of them by the Western press includes accusations of human rights violations, you know, that type of thing as well. So I think you've already appropriately addressed the whole issue, unless you want to add anything else before we move on. I would just say that if you're reading about it in the Western press, it's probably 90% wrong. That's been my finding as well. And I get tired of addressing the 90%. It's such a huge volume that you spend all your time denying what's falsehoods rather than trying to really get at the truth, which is what I want to turn to now on some other issues. So thank you for that clarification. You gave a a talk a month or two ago that I came across that I found very provocative. It was a June 4th talk in Houston. Among the, the many things that you talked about, I wanted to go through a few things that you mentioned because I think they're really important. But before we turn to what you said there, one of the things that I wanted to ask you to address, I'm trying to get a handle on the casualty rates among civilians in the Ukraine and in the military in the Ukraine versus the Russian losses, which increasingly are getting greater due to the higher level of technology of military equipment that's been just unbelievably pumped in there to elongate this military conflict. But Can you speak specifically, I know you don't have exact numbers, Scott, but I know that you would be much closer to the ballpark of numbers than anyone else I could access. Can you give us an update on those casualty numbers as you see them? Sure. Well, before we start with with casualty numbers, we have to become familiar with what I call military math. It's, It's very important that people understand the foundation of casualty calculations throughout history. Generally speaking, in armed conflict of the modern nature, such as World War II, the civilian to military casualty ratio is about one to one. That is, for every combatant that dies, there's a civilian that dies. To show you, you know, the horrific reality of this, a lot of people don't realize that when we liberated Normandy, we killed 60,000 French civilians. A lot of people focus on saving Private Ryan, you know, and storming the beach and Americans killing Germans and Germans killing Americans. But in the middle of all that were French civilians who were being slaughtered, obliterated, 60,000 of them. And that's just the unfortunate consequence of war. So there's that. Two, when armies fight, generally speaking, the casualty ratio is about 1.2 to 1 in favor of 
the victor, which means that you don't normally get large disparities between two relatively capable military forces, such as, for instance, the German army and the American army during World War II or the German army and the Soviet army during World War II. So even though the Americans won and the Soviets won, the casualty ratios were about 1.2, 1.4 to 1. That is, for every American killed, 1.2 to 1.4 Germans were killed. And so that's an important thing to know, that when you get involved in these big battles, uh, large-scale land warfare. Excuse me, Scott, you're talking about military, not civilians. So when we know that Russia lost some 20-plus million civilians and military, that's a different equation you're working from? Yeah, it's 27 million people. I'm talking about on the right now. I'm talking about on the battlefield. Okay, military, uh, military. 1.2 to 1.4 to 1. So now we come to Ukraine. There's a document that was leaked from the Ministry of Defense of Ukraine that appears to be credible. It appears to be the real thing. And it basically says that uh, by the end of July, the Ukrainian military had suffered 191,000 casualties. Just the just the army. When you add in the other casualties from the border guards, from the Air Force and elsewhere, the number gets closer to a quarter of a million. That's 250,000 dead and wounded. That's a lot, by the way. People should understand that. Now, if we're using the, the correlation of you know 1.2 to 1 type thing, that means that the Russians should have suffered you know, around 210, 220,000 casualties. Russia has suffered nothing close to that. While the Russians haven't released the, the kind of you know, specific information. Uh, they have released some information. And then when you, again, I'm not going to go through the methodology used, but you military math, anybody who's an expert in military affairs understands how to do correlations between a probability of kill versus the number of artillery rounds versus quality of the intelligence versus the nature of the terrain, the amount of ammunition expended over time, things of that nature to come up with an idea of which side is getting the advantage. I think it's reasonable to say at this point in time that the Russian military has suffered around 5,000 dead and that between them, the Donetsk and, uh, and Lugansk people's militias have suffered around 10,000 dead. So 15,000 dead on the Russian side. Their wounded are probably in the area of 20, 25 to 30,000 wounded. So we're, we're probably looking around 55,000 Russian casualties. Um, now, so right off the bat, that's total casualties from the beginning of the conflict till now. So we're, we're looking at, you know, basically one to five. For every one Russian, there's five Ukrainians. First of all, that's, that's just an overwhelming ratio. It far exceeds what you normally see in warfare between two well-trained, well-armed units. You don't normally get this kind of disparity, one to five. But that's even misleading because that number takes into account the casualties that were occurring Early on in the conflict, where Russia was suffering heavier losses and the Ukrainians were suffering, you know, not not as many. If you take a look, if you take a snapshot of what's happening today, the Russians are probably achieving a kill ratio of twenty to one. In some cases, up to thirty to one. That is, for every Russian dead, they're killing twenty to thirty Ukrainians. This is insane, but it's real. Just listen to the Ukrainian soldiers themselves when they come back. They say, "Look, we go to the front lines. We're ready to fight the Russians. We want to fight the Russians." They put us in a trench, and then we proceed to get blown up by their artillery. They kill 50% of our people. We're pulled back. We're all dead. We're defeated. And we never saw a Russian. We never saw a Russian. So the Russians aren't exposing themselves. The Russians are slaughtering. They've perfected this warfare so that they're killing Ukrainians at an unbelievable rate, and they're minimizing the exposure that they play, you know, have to the Ukrainians. 
That doesn't mean they're not being killed. As you pointed out, Ukraine has received uh, some modern weaponry and they're employing it. They're inflicting casualties on the Russians, but not anything close to what the Russians are doing to them. Let's just look at basic, again, military math. Russia's firing 60 to 75,000 artillery rounds a day. Ukraine is firing 6,000 artillery rounds a day. The Russians have far superior intelligence and, and the accuracy of their systems is, is tremendous. But let's just assume for a second that the Ukrainians, every time they fire around, they kill somebody. They, something happens. And let's say the Russians are only effective one third of the time. It doesn't take a genius in math to realize that very soon the Ukrainians are going to lose all of their capability because no matter how good they are, there's just so many more Russians. And I'm telling you right now, the Russians are better than the Ukrainians. So anybody who is pretending to say that Ukraine is inflicting overwhelming losses on the Russians right now that that are debilitating and they haven't a clue what they're talking about. Military math precludes that possibility. The only possibility that can occur on the battlefield right now is an overwhelming Russian victory. And that's exactly what's happening. Scott, we need to take a quick pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis. This is the premier community radio station of the nation. And we will be back with our guest, Marine Scott Ritter. After this brief pause, don't touch that dial.